develop vocal cords until they move away from home. And in a perfect world, politicians would pay us taxes. Unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world. And even if we did, we are imperfect people. And so we need the fourth characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit. We need patience in an imperfect world. Are you patient? How do you handle it when you're in the 12 items or less line with a few things in your hand and the lady in front of you has a grocery cart full of stuff? And can you bite your tongue when you get up to the cashier and the the sign says cash only and she pulls out her checkbook? Or when you get on the interstate, am I doing that? I don't know what I'm doing. How about when you get on the interstate and the, the sign says left lane ends, 500 feet, merge right, and you cooperate and you merge right, and then some guy in a big white van looks something like Bill Cheek comes flying by down that left lane. You know, I find this character quality very convicting because I don't like to wait. I don't like to go to Six Flags because I can't stand to stay in those lines. The only time I ever enjoyed it was this summer. Can I do something? Switch over here. Okay, I'm on there. Okay. I'm also impatient with bad mics. Don't like to go to Six Flags. This summer we went to Six Flags with Lindsay and Tempa, and Tempa had a herniated disc, so we rented one of those motorized carts. And I found out that when you have a wheelchair, you get to go to the front of the line. So I actually enjoyed Six Flags. Come on, honey, we're going on the big roller coaster. I don't go to the stores to return gifts the week after Christmas because I can't stand those lines. I wait till February. Don't like to wait. Almost exactly three years ago today, I returned from Africa. And I'd been in planes and in airports for nearly 30 hours when I got to Newark, New Jersey. And I got off the plane from Rome and I went to the gate where I was going to catch my final leg of the flight back to St. Louis and I knew at that very moment that my wife was traveling up to St. Louis to meet me at the airport and I hadn't seen her in 19 days and I got to the gate and there was a sign over the gate that read Nashville so I got in the ticket line and I waited and I got up to the attendant and I said I'm supposed to be catching flight 1402 for St. Louis at this gate And he said, well, that flight has been canceled. And I said, no, you mean delayed. And he said, no, canceled. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do? And he said, well, I don't know. I just work here. (laughs) He said, but if you'd like to, you can go talk to someone in our terminal office. 
So I went down there and I stood in line and finally got up to the desk and I asked the lady, why has my flight been canceled? And she said, it's been canceled because of weather in St. Louis. I said, well, what's the weather like in St. Louis? And she said, I think it's rainy. I said, well, we got a two-hour flight. By the time we get there, it'll probably stop raining. And anyway, I have never heard of a flight being canceled because of rain. And she said, well, now you have. I said, well, what am I supposed to do? She said, well, you can go to another airline and make other arrangements. Or... You can wait for our next flight to St. Louis that leaves in about two hours, but I can't guarantee that you're going to get on it. You'll have to wait in the standby line. I said, well, what if I don't get a seat? She said, well, then you can come back here and stand in line, and I'll give you some other options, like our flight to St. Louis tomorrow morning. Now, I went to Africa thinking I was going to learn patience in a third world country because they don't have roads. Little did I know that I was going to come back to Newark, New Jersey and get a lesson in patience there. I ended up flying to St. Louis in the middle seat between two ladies. Something I hate worse than waiting. (laughs) I don't like to wait. I wish I was more like the little boy in the department store who was standing at the end of the escalator watching the rail go around. And a salesman saw the little boy and he came up to him and said, Son, are you lost? And he said, Oh no, I'm just waiting for my chewing gum to come back. (laughs) You know, of all these virtues of the fruit of the Spirit, I think patience is the one that we like the least. But maybe of all those virtues, it's the most mandatory one in our Christian life. Because there are many areas of life where we just have to have patience. And I want to point out three of them to you this morning. And for that, I'd like you to turn, if you have your Bible, to James chapter 5. Because in James chapter 5, verses 7 to 11, James points out three areas where we have to have patience. The first area is patience with the divine program. Notice verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, James illustrates patience by pointing to a farmer. And if you have ever done any farming, you know that farmers have to be patient. A farmer breaks up the ground and then he removes the rocks and he plants the seed and he pulls the weeds and then he waits. He waits for the rain to come and he waits for the crop to develop. A farmer has to be patient because he's depending on God's program and he's operating on God's timetable. And if you're a Christian here this morning, the same is true of you. We spend a great deal of life in the waiting room. We wait to get married. We wait for children. We wait for an illness to pass. We wait for a bone 
to heal. We wait for a dream to happen. And ultimately, we wait for the Lord Jesus to return. And all of that requires patience. And there are no shortcuts. Abraham learned that the hard way. When he was 75 years old, God promised that he would have a son. Ten years went by and there was no evidence that God was going to fulfill that promise. And so Abraham got impatient. And to hurry God up a little bit, he had a child with Hagar, his wife Sarah's servant. Now, did God say, thanks a lot, Abraham. I was having a tough time working that promise out. No. You see, Abraham, by being impatient, just complicated matters. Because his son Ishmael became the father of the Ishmaelites and the Midianites who were constantly at war with God's people. And Abraham still had to wait 14 more years to get his promised son, Isaac. You cannot rush God's program. You have to wait. And that ability to wait is an evidence of maturity. How many of you have taken a long trip with small children? What's their number one question? How much longer till we get there? And why do they ask that question? Because they're kids. You see, if you take an adult couple, they don't ask that question. If they do, don't take them again. (laughs) You see, patience is a sign of maturity. In 1897, there was a man by the name of Pearl, Pearl Waite, W-A-I-T. He was a construction worker who dabbled in patent medicines and sold his remedies door to door. One day he was in the kitchen with his wife and the idea hit him to mix fruit flavor with granulated gelatin. So he asked his wife to make up a batch. So she took granulated gelatin and fruit flavoring, mixed it up, they put ice around it, it came out as a gel, and it tasted wonderful. And his wife said, let's call it Jell-O. And he said, that's a great idea. Maybe this is the product that will get us to the big time. Well, since it was all that he knew to do, he went door to door trying to sell his new product, Jell-O. But he soon ran out of patience. And so two years later, in 1899, he sold all the rights to Jell-O to a man by the name of Order Woodward for $450. Order Woodward took this package called Jell-O, and in eight short years, he turned a $450 investment into a one million a year business. And three years after the 100th anniversary of Jell-O, 1.1 million boxes of Jell-O are sold in the United States every single day. But you know what? Pearl Waite's descendants don't get one red cent of that money. You know why? Because Waite wouldn't wait. See, if Waite had waited, he would have been a wealthy Waite. Let me tell you something. If you're going to get the blessings that that God wants to give you in your life, you're going to have to learn to wait. 
Isaiah 40, 31 says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We need patience with the divine program. But there's a second area we need patience. We also need patience with difficult people. Look at James chapter 5 and verse 9. He says, do not complain, brethren, against one another. Are there people in your life that test your patience? Don't look at them. People who make you late. People who make you wait. People who don't remember what you told them two minutes ago. It was a rainy day, and so the first grade teacher stopped several minutes before the final bell so she could sit down on the floor and put galoshes on her 34 children. She struggled and strained and pushed and finally got them on the first little girl, and she looked up at the teacher and said, These aren't my galoshes. So she struggled and strained and pulled those galoshes off, and the little girl said, They're my sister's galoshes, and she lets me wear them. People can irritate you. People can test your patience. In fact, the Greek word for patience is an interesting word. It's the Greek word makrothumai. Makro means long. Thumai means heat. It literally means to have a long fuse. Patience is the opposite of a quick temper. It describes someone who is slow to get angry. Someone who doesn't boil over easily. Now I want you to notice something. It doesn't mean no fuse. It's not wrong to get angry. God gave you the capacity for anger. In fact, sometimes anger is the most appropriate response to a situation. When you read in the paper, as we did this week, that a four-year-old girl in Scott City was abducted from her house and sexually abused, that better make you angry. See, patience is not passivity. Patience is not indifference. Patience is not apathy. Patience doesn't mean you never get angry. If you never get angry, you're a vegetable. Does God ever get angry? Absolutely. If you look up anger in a concordance, you'll find that it's used most often of God. It talks about the anger of the Lord. Did Jesus ever get angry? Absolutely. He got so angry, he ran the money changers out of the temple with a whip. But listen, God is slow to anger. He told Moses in Exodus 34, 6, that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Now let me suggest seven ways that you can become more slow to anger. Seven ways that you can lengthen your fuse. And if you don't need to hear this, don't look at someone who does. Number one, restrain your temper. You say, well, that sounds, that's my problem. 
I'm Irish. I have a bad temper. I can't control my temper. Yes, you can. Listen to Proverbs 29, 11. It says, a fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Did you get that? God has given you the capacity to hold back your temper. So stop making excuses. You have more control in this area than you think you do. You ever been having a conflict with your wife or your kids and things are starting to get heated and you're starting to yell and the phone rings? And you stop in the middle and you say, Hello? Yes? I'm doing fine. How are you? Now, how did you do that? How did you turn that off in that moment? You see, you have control over your anger when you want to. The key is, it's easier to refrain from anger when it's heating up than when it's hot. It's hard to deal with anger when you're angry. And so you need to deal with it at the outset. Refrain your temper. Second, realize the cost. Having a short fuse is not a little thing. It's a little thing that causes big problems. And I wrote down five costs of losing your temper. Number one, it costs you in the area of your thoughts. Proverbs 14.29 says, He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. If you want to find a person who has great understanding, don't look at how long a list of titles he has. Don't look at how long a list of degrees he has. Don't look at how long a list of credentials he has. Look at how long a fuse he has. Because patience is the sign of great understanding. And the reverse of that is true. A person who is impatient, a person who is quick-tempered, lacks understanding. Anger kills brain cells. When you are angry, you don't think right. Second cost is your actions. Proverbs 14, 17 says, A quick-tempered man acts foolishly. When you are angry, you don't act right. Have you ever watched how people act when they're angry? They do stupid things. Jerry Springer has based a popular TV show on it. Let's get people really angry and then watch what they do. You see, anger controls your actions. King Saul got so angry in 1 Samuel 20, 33 that he threw his spear at his son at the dinner table. If you don't control your temper, your temper will control you. In fact, Proverbs 29, 22 says, A hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Do you want to abound in sin? Then just walk around with a hot temper. Third cost. Not only does it affect your thoughts and that you can't understand, not only does it affect your actions and that you act stupid, but thirdly, it affects and costs you your identity. 
Ecclesiastes 7, 9 says, Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Anger is not a peripheral issue. Anger takes up residence in your bosom. So you see, how you deal with anger determines who you are. It determines your identity. It is the distinguishing feature between a wise person and a fool. Fourth cost is your relationships with others. Proverbs 15, 18 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Anger causes fights. It destroys relationships. If after the service I come up to you and start yelling at you, you're probably going to yell back at me. And even if you don't, it's going to affect our relationship. You see, you can motivate your kids by anger. And it works short term. But in the long run, you always lose. Because anger wrecks relationships. And if that isn't bad enough, the fifth cost is your relationship with God. James put it this way in James 1.20, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. When your temper is controlling you, you can be certain that God is not. Uncontrolled anger is no light matter. And some of us need to sit down and realize the cost. It affects our thoughts in that we don't understand. It affects our actions in that we do stupid things. It affects our identity so that we are labeled as a fool. It destroys our relationship with others and it destroys our relationship with God. Then let me give you a third way to lengthen your fuse. Reflect before you react. If you're going to control your temper, you're going to have to learn to stop reacting and start reflecting. James made that clear in James 1.19. He said, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. In order to get slow to anger, I have to be quicker to hear than I am to speak. I need to reflect before I react. Do you remember what Jesus did before he drove the money changers out of the temple in John chapter 2? The Bible says he sat down and made the whip. He was reflecting before he reacted. And one of the things you need to reflect on is why you're angry. Why am I angry? There are several things that make us angry. One thing that makes us angry is being hurt. When you're out in the garage and you bang your thumb with a hammer, it may make you angry. That's because you are hurt. And that same principle applies to emotional hurt. If your husband just realized that your anniversary is the same as his, you're probably angry because you're hurt. Another reason we get angry is frustration. When the weather gets hot and humid, what happens? People get more irritable out of frustration. You may be saying, well, I'm pretty patient most of the time. I just lose my patience when things are hectic and stressful at work. 
Well, then that tells me that your wife and your children are not really the problem. The problem is your frustration that you're not dealing with. A third reason for anger is fear. If you back an animal into a corner, it will fight back out of fear. Saul was angry with David because he was afraid he was going to lose his throne. You see, we need to reflect before we react. And one of the things we need to do while we're reflecting is ask ourselves, is this anger coming out because I'm hurt or because I'm frustrated or because I'm afraid or is it righteous indignation? And most of the time I find that when I really reflect honestly before God, I come to the conclusion that anger is not a valid response. Then the fourth way to become more slow to anger is to respond appropriately. How do you respond when you're angry? I find there are four options and the first three don't work. Number one option is to dismiss it. And I find a lot of Christians do this. A lot of Christians say, well, I know it's unspiritual to be angry, so I'll just deny that I am. You ever run into somebody like that? You say, what's wrong? Oh, nothing. I can tell something's wrong. Nothing's wrong! Then why are you yelling? I'm not yelling! See, we are not to deny anger. We're not to pretend that it doesn't exist. Paul told us in Ephesians 4.26 not to go to bed angry. We are to resolve anger before we go to bed. And sometimes you have to stay up all night. And the reason he gives us for resolving anger before we go to bed is because when we don't, verse 27 says, we give the devil an opportunity. You know what the devil does when we let our anger stew? He turns anger into bitterness. So in many ways, dismissing anger is the very worst thing you can do. Because when you dismiss anger, you're not even letting the other person know that you're angry so that he or she can help resolve it. The only person you're giving an opportunity to is the devil to make matters worse. Second option is to suppress it. And this is just a shade different than the first one. This is when you acknowledge there's anger, but you stuff it. You swallow it. Professional counselors tell us that the number one cause of depression is stuffed anger. Suppression leads to depression. So when you hear somebody saying, I'm so depressed, what they may need to be saying is, I'm so angry. Option number three is to express it. That's when we let it all hang out. That's when we vent our anger. You blow up, you pout, you're sarcastic, you're cynical. Many psychologists actually encourage this response. It's a therapy called primal scream. And it's based on the premise that you have a bucket full of anger and you need to dump it and if you'll dump it you'll be okay 
If you dump your bucket of anger, you'll be happy. It's sort of like spiritual vomiting. You know, you do it and then you feel a little better. But see, the truth is that you don't just have a bucket full of anger. You've got an ocean full of anger. You've got an unlimited supply. You have got a bottomless bucket of anger. And angry outbursts just lead to more and more angry outbursts. When we express our anger, we are not subtracting it. We are multiplying it. Don't dismiss it. Don't suppress it. Don't express it. What should you do? Number four, confess it. When I reflect honestly before God, before I do anything, and I realize, hey, this anger is really because I'm hurt, or this anger is really because I'm frustrated, or this anger is really because I'm afraid. When I realize that, then I need to come to God and confess it to Him and give it to Him and ask Him to change my heart. And it may be on some occasions when I haven't held it in that I need to go to another person and confess it as well. I'm sorry that I was angry. And I was wrong. And then sit down with that person and talk about how to resolve, resolve that hurt or that frustration or that fear. Fifth way to lengthen your fuse. Reprogram your mind. Romans 12.2 says you are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The way you think determines the way you feel. Angry thoughts lead to angry actions. Belief controls behavior. Television and movies teach us that when we get angry, use a gun. When we get angry, cuss them out. When we get angry, seek revenge. And we're programmed that way over and over and over. And we need to reprogram our minds with the truth of God's Word. Sixth way to lengthen your fuse. Relate to people who are patient. Proverbs twenty two twenty four says, Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man lest you learn his ways. Is anger contagious? Yes, it is. It's highly infectious. You pick up the traits of the people you associate with. And so if you are serious about breaking this habit in your life, you need to hang around people who have it together in this area. And then the seventh way to lengthen your fuse, and it should probably be the first way, is rely on God. God has demonstrated to us how to be patient with difficult people. Because in 2 Peter 3.9 it says, The Lord is patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Aren't you thankful that God has a long fuse? Some of us tested his patience for many years, and God never said, I've had enough. He just kept waiting. And for some of you here this morning, he's still waiting. He's still patiently waiting for you to come to him. And when we come to Him, He not only shows us His patience, but He produces that patience in us. The list of the fruit of the Spirit is preceded in Galatians 5 by a list of the deeds of the flesh. 
One of the things that the flesh produces in Galatians 5.20 is outbursts of anger. Outbursts of anger. That's what we get when we rely on ourselves. But Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is patience. That's what we get when we rely on God. And then there's a third area we need patience in. And that's patience with demanding problems. James chapter 5 and verse 10 says, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. James specifically mentions the example of Job. What did Job experience? Well, he experienced destitution. He lost all of his oxen and donkeys and sheep and camels and all but four servants. He went from a hero to a zero in one day. Destitution. Secondly, he experienced death. All ten of his children were killed in a moment in the same day. Destitution, death, thirdly, disease. He got cancerous boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He experienced destitution, death, disease, and desertion. His very best friends came and criticized him. And his wife said, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Now that adds up to some pretty formidable, demanding problems. But James says we don't really understand Job until we see the outcome of his life. And in Job 42.5, Job says this to God, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. God, I used to hear about you before I had all these problems. Now I see you eye to eye. You see, the difficulties that Job went through brought him closer to God. And Job teaches us that the greatest lessons of life don't come in the easy times. They come when we persevere through the hard times. And that's such an important lesson for us to learn. Because I know something about every single person in this room today. And that is that you have problems. You have problems. And you need to learn the lesson from Job. Problems are not meant to defeat you. They are not meant to depress you. They are not meant to discourage you. They are meant to develop you. Problems don't come as traps to tear you down. Problems come as tools to build you up. When a baby giraffe is born, its front hooves come out of the womb first, and then its head comes out, and then the rest of the body comes out. And the problem with a little giraffe is that its mommy is tall. And so it falls 10 feet down to the ground and lands on its back. It lays there for a while, and then it rolls over, and it tries to stand up for the first time. And while it's wobbling and trembling on those thin, untrained, weak legs... You know what its mother does? 
she swings her leg out and kicks the little calf and sends him head over heels onto the ground. And he struggles and rolls over and he gets back to his feet and you know what the mother giraffe does? She kicks him again and knocks him down. And I'm sure that little, lad, that little calf looks up about after the third time and wonders, what is she doing? And the answer is that she is helping develop that calf to survive in the jungle. Maybe you're here today and you're looking up at God and saying, what is he doing? Why is he allowing all these problems in my life? And the answer is the same. He is developing you. Listen to Romans 5.3. It says, tribulation brings about patience. And patience brings about proven character. And proven character brings about hope. And hope does not disappoint. God does not develop patience in you by taking you out of problems. God develops patience in you by taking you through problems. So if you're wobbling and weak and getting knocked down by problems this morning, you need to keep trusting God. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's developing patience in you.